Our sermon today will be taken from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of God. Thank you, Emily. Um, so for our sermon today, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're doing two different series uh, up until the uh, month of December, the end of this year, and this is one of them. But in order for us to understand today's passage properly in the context that it's in, give me just a few minutes to remind us what's happening. So in, this, in the context, Paul wrote this letter, we now call Galatians, to churches in a region called Galatia. Paul wrote this letter because they're facing a really critical dilemma. Paul wrote this letter because the Galatian church was facing the most important question that they would ever face. And if we believe that God exists... This is also the most important question that we all face, and it's this. How does broken and imperfect people relate with a holy God? If we believe that God exists, that is the single most important question we have in our lives. How does broken and imperfect people relate with this holy God? And we've seen through the first few chapters that these Galatian Christians had a few options laid out before them. Okay, there's a few options and a few ways of, of how... Uh, they think man can relate with God. First is through what we called hard legalism. We defined it as hard legalism. There was a group we read in chapter 2 called the Circumcision Group who came in to Galatia and started confusing these churches, saying that, oh, you're saved by obeying the legalistic requirements of the Old Testament law. Hence the term hard legalism. You're saved by your legalistic obedience to the law, including the law of circumcision. This is how broken, sinful man relate with God. The second option is what we defined as soft legalism. Now, soft legalism is um, uh, uh, we see, a, we see a, a group of Christians coming into Galatia from, from Jerusalem, and these Christians were saying, yes, you're saved by faith. So these are Christians. These are people who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They said, no, 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 you're not, you're not saved by obeying the law. You're saved by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. But you can continue in your relationship with God. You can be perfected in your relationship with God. You can be more loved by God by keeping the Old Testament laws. You see the difference there? It's a bit of, one says you're saved by obeying. The other says, no, 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 you're saved by Christ, but you maintain your salvation by obeying. As if Jesus paid the really expensive down payment for our salvation, and now it's up to us to pay the monthly fees. This is called soft legalism. This is what they said. This is how broken man is to relate to God. And the third and last option is what Paul said through the gospel. Paul says this is the answer. 
This is actually how broken and perfect man can have a relationship with the holy God through the gospel. The gospel is this, that God became man and he died on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment of our sins, which we deserve. And he does this, saving us not 50%, not 90%, but 100%. And Paul, along with all the other biblical authors, says this is the way that sinful, broken man can have a relationship with God. Now, if I can, before I enter the sermon, be a little bit vulnerable with you. I've been a little bit insecure through this series of Galatians. Um, because some have been saying to me that this, this gospel that the book of Galatians preaches, and it's going to be the gospel over and over again, really, in different angles and different ways, they said that it's not practical enough, and um, it's so intangible. It's such an airy concept. Like, I'm not getting any practical living... Um, um, instructions of, of how to live life. And this, this gospel, it doesn't pay bills. We can't eat it. We can't physically consume it. I want more practical stuff in my sermons. And I get that. I'm kind of like that too. I, I want practical things as well. And I think there's truth to that, that that we can learn from and see if we can maybe preach some passages that are more practical in nature. But let me just say two things to that. And I hope these two things are said not as a self-defense, but for all of us here to maybe appreciate the book of Galatians more and this gospel a little more. Two things. First, I want to encourage us to think that the gospel is really practical, actually. Again, if we believe what the Bible says, that it, the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross, reconciles us with an eternal holy God, that's pretty practical <laughs> to me. And, and second, I want us to remember for a minute to our live stories, our past Think about the most beautiful, significant times in your life. Um, it could be the moment when you met a best friend, or the moment when you first fell in love. Maybe your wedding day when you're married, if you're married, or maybe the day your child was born. These are important, significant, valuable times and instances in our lives, and they shape us who we are today. I want to point out that the most significant things in life, they don't necessarily pay our bills. We can't eat it. We can't necessarily consume them. But why is it still important? Why is it significant? Because the most beautiful things in life, we don't consume. It consumes us. And as you hear this gospel, I want you to hopefully, I want myself, to be consumed deeper by it, that it shapes our life in such a way that it's lived out for him who gave himself on that cross. So, as we move forward, let's listen to Paul. And as he reminds, how he reminds the Galatian church, the Galatian Christians, of God's all-consuming love. He tells them in this passage three things. One, he tells them to remember their initial conversion. This is how we fight legalism. Remember your initial conversion. Remember Abraham's initial conversion. We'll get to that later. And he reveals to them God's original plan. Three things. To fight soft and hard legalism, Paul reminds them, remember your initial conversion. Paul tells them, remember Abraham's initial conversion, and Paul, and Paul reveals to them God's original plan. Before we enter in our sermon, let's, let's pray. Lord, this gospel may not seem utilitarian at first, may not seem um, uh, uh, like a tool that, that can pay bills or, or fill our stomachs, physically speaking, but Father, it is the most beautiful truth that this universe can ever contain. And let it consume us more, let it change our lives and shape us to becoming those who love and follow you and worship you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First point. Paul tells them 
Don't succumb to the hard and, legal, and soft legalistic gospels. They're, they're false. Remember how you were first converted. Earlier we said that the Christian in Galatia was struggling with three different options of how broken sinful man can relate with God. And let me repeat them just one more time. There's hard legalism that says obey the law equals salvation. There's soft legalism that says, no, 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 you're saved by Christ, but to maintain your salvation, you must continue to obey the law. And the third is the gospel that says 100% we are saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, the Galatian church were leaning more towards one of those three. They're leaning more towards soft legalism. How do we see this? Look at verse 1. Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Why did Paul call them foolish? Because somebody has bewitched them. Somebody has tricked them. Somebody has brought them away from the course that they were on. So they originally understood that they're saved by Christ and Christ alone. It says that Jesus Christ was crucified in front of you, not meaning that they were actually there when Jesus was being crucified, but this is just merely an expression of Paul's preaching of the gospel to them was so vivid that as if Jesus was crucified before them because they did not live in a time and place where Jesus was crucified. He's saying, you've heard the gospel. You've seen it so clearly, and you're going good. You're going at the right track, but somebody at one point bewitched you. Somebody misguided you. Now, I want us to relate to that by thinking of how many of us here who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior still struggle with the same questions. They're struggling. I'm saved by Christ, but these people are telling me that I'm, 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 I can continue in my salvation by my obedience, and I'm feeling insecure now because really if I'm honest about the state of my obedience, it stinks, and it's not good at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm doubting now my salvation. I'm doubting now how much God loves me. And a lot of us maybe feel that way if we're Christians here. How many of us that if we fall into deep, deep sin, wallow in that sin as if God has left us? How many of us, when we fall into repetitive sin, wander, is, is this my last chance? Is this the last chance God's going to give me? Have I finally lost his favor? And for Christians here who, like the uh, Galatian church, is struggling with this, Paul asks them, and he also asks us, just this one question. Look at verse 2. If you're doubting, if you're a Christian, if you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're doubting your salvation because you have been in sin, or you fell into sin, or you've been disobedient, or you failed, let me just ask you this, verse 2 says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, again, these Galatian church have received the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit just means that you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Spirit has worked in your heart to receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So these Galatian Christians have received the Spirit. And Paul asked them, do you remember when you received Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you remember that time when you, when you received him? How did that happen exactly? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How about us here? When we remember back in the day when we received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we received the Spirit, how did, how did we receive Him? Was it by works of the law? Did we at one point feel like we've done enough things and then we go to God and say, oh, I've, I'm good now. Yes, I've, I finally memorized the 70 target verses that I've, that I've been wanting to memorize. I've, I'm done. I've, I've memorized all 70. All right, Spirit, I'm ready to receive you now. Is, is that how we're saved? 
Did we say, oh, oh, finally, I've succeeded in going to church for two straight years. I haven't missed one Sunday. I've read the Bible every single day, and I've prayed for 25 minutes every single day for two years. Yes, I'm done. I've, I've fulfilled the law. Hey, Holy Spirit, I'm ready to receive you now. Is that how we were saved? Was it by the works of the law? No, it wasn't, wasn't it, if we remember back. We received Jesus Christ not because we felt like we succeeded. We received him because we actually realized how far we are from ever being successful in obeying God's laws. How did we receive Jesus Christ? Look at verse 2, the end of it. Um, Through the word of God. Let's get one thing straight, Paul says. The spirit of God cannot be controlled by our obedience. The spirit of God cannot be tamed by our morality. You did not receive the Spirit because you succeeded in obeying a certain set of rules. You received the Spirit when you heard God's Word through faith. You heard the Word of God. You heard the good news that says we cannot save ourselves, no matter how hard we try, no matter how obedient we are. Salvation does not come from our personal morality. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Paul says this again. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Are you so foolish, Paul says in verse 3, continuing in our passage today. He's aiming at the soft legalistic tendencies. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's asking them, if at our initial conversion, our obedience had no power in making God's Spirit save us, why do we think that our obedience now has any power in maintaining our salvation? See, this is often a big misunderstanding of what the gospel is. It's been preached in these ways, and and it's not accurate. If Jesus merely died, um, it's as if Jesus merely died for the possibility of our salvation, but it's up to us to kind of maintain the salvation till the end. I've heard the gospel described this way. I've heard heard somebody say, um, this is the gospel, that God gave us his laws, and the more you obey God's laws, the more you're able to avoid potholes on the way. And if you avoid enough potholes along the way, you're eventually going to reach God and be safe in heaven with him forever. That is not the gospel. The gospel does not say that if you obey God's laws, you can avoid potholes along the way. The gospel says that God gave us his laws to make us realize that we were already lying dead in the middle of a pothole. And that we have no assurance, we have no hope save in the death of Christ our God on a cross. That's the gospel. You don't avoid potholes. You're, you're dead. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our uh, uh, call to worship. Dry bones. All in all. I've heard the gospel been described as we're in a ocean, middle of the ocean, and, and we're, we're sinking. And we're kind of like struggling. We're kind of like, you know, swimming and barely sinking, and our arms are kind of moving up and down. And we're, God, save me, save me. And then finally God comes and reaches and saves us. That's not the gospel. We're not, we're not reaching for God. We're dead in the middle of the ocean, eaten by sharks. <laughs> we're dead in our sin. We're not struggling. We're, we have no life. Read Colossians 2.13 with me. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We're not sick. We're not limping. We're not struggling. We're not sinking. We're dead, and we have no hope unless God gives us life. It's not 50-50. It's not 
is 100% the work of Christ on the cross who's completed our salvation for us and the work of the Spirit who reveals that truth in our hearts that we may receive him. Continue with me in the passage. Paul continues his argument here to combat soft legalism. Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let me explain this real quick. I know it's a bit of a side note, but I think it, it, it uh, merits some explanation. Let's do a brief note on miracles. Miracles, is, as defined in the Westminster Catechism, which I think is a great definition, is God working above, without, and against the natural laws he has set in place. Miracles are God working above, without, and or against the natural laws he has set in place. Now, this is one of the biblical truths that many academic theologians feel really embarrassed about admitting because it makes Christianity sound like a fairy tale. And I don't think we need to be embarrassed about that. Let's address this real quick. It's, you know, it, it, it's hard to, especially in a postmodern era like this, but, but let's try to do that. Um, I want us to see that our reluctance of receiving the reality of miracles is actually not because we have a hard time receiving miracles. It's because we have a hard time receiving the fact that there's a creator God. If we believe that there's a creator God, if we believe that there's a God that's created everything, then it's not really that hard for him to do miracles. If we believe in God that's created all of nature and all its laws, it's not that hard for him to work above, against, and without his natural laws. He's God. He has all the right to do that. A lot of people say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. I believe in God, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Those things are just too miraculous for me. Well, logically, you can't say that. If you believe in God, these things are really easy for him to do. But if you don't believe in a creator God, then logically you can conclude that miracles are irrational. You, you see that? If you don't believe in this, then yes, that's irrational. But if you believe in this, this is very rational. It's very simple for him to do that. So, so our reluctance with miracles isn't actually our reluctance with the actual miracles. It's, it's, it's our reluctance with believing that there is a creator God who's done this. All right, one last thing. I personally, uh, and, and along with the Reformed Church, would say that Miracles no longer, is no longer the norm in how God operates today, but that's a different sermon for a different time. <laughs> so, Paul is saying, um, where was I? Paul is saying, all right, think of these miracles as defined earlier. You know, God, uh, God working without, against, and uh, uh, above his natural laws. Paul asked him, does the spirit who works miracles among you, which was the norm at the time, did he do that as a result of our obedience? Did he do that because we somehow have obeyed God enough so the Spirit worked miracles? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. The Spirit performs miracles freely and independently from our obedience. Paul is saying that this same Spirit that works miracles outside of us, he does so inside of us as well. He reveals Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He doesn't do that dependent upon our morality, our obedience. He does that freely in his own will. He's not dependent upon how many times we prayed that day, how many times we went to church that year. It is simply the height of pride to think that our morality can tame God. It is simply the height of pride to think that our morality can tame God, a sin I fall into every day. Now, at this point, Paul switches gears, and he does something really important. After he's appealed to their emotion, after he's appealed to their experiences, he goes back to Scripture. And this is really important. 
Whenever somebody claims a truth about God that affects your emotions, whenever somebody claims a truth about God or experience you've had about with God and affects how you feel, always, always, always double check whether or not what this person claims is in line with biblical truth. Always check that because emotions and experiences are very strong things and they control us very much. And it can be easily used for one's own agenda. So when you hear a truth about God and it affects you internally, check with the scriptures. Is this what the Bible says is true? And this is what Paul does in verse 6. After he appeals to their, remember when he first came to Christ? After he appeals to their experiences um, and emotions, he says, look at the Bible. It's all over the Bible, which leads us to our number two point, second point. Abraham's initial conversion. Paul is saying, remember your initial conversion, but also remember Abraham's initial conversion. Look at scripture. Look at the Old Testament. Here Paul is re referring back to the, to the book of Genesis, right? When Abraham's story was there. Um, he said that was Abraham saved by works of the law or by faith? Which is, by the way, their circumcision group's main argument. Remember the group that said it's, 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 about, it's hard legalism, right? You have to obey God's laws to be saved. That's what they said. Oh, look, Abraham, he was circumcised. He obeyed God's laws. He obeyed the Old Testament. And that's how he was saved. And because that's how Abraham was saved, that's also how we are saved here today. Paul tells them, read it again. Read the story of Abraham again. He was not saved by his obedience. He was saved by faith just like us. Look at verse 6 with me in our, in our, in our um, passage. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting Genesis 15, 6 here. Why did, he want, why did he specifically choose that verse to quote? Because the legalistic people are saying, Abraham saved by circumcision. Therefore, we are saved by obedience to the law. Paul, Paul is saying, no, it's not. When did God tell Abraham, when did God give Abraham the circumcision law? Genesis 17. This is interesting. It wasn't before, um, it, it wasn't, um, before he was saved, it was after he was saved. Let's look at Genesis 17 with me. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17. When was Abraham saved? Genesis 18? He was saved Genesis 15. He was saved before he obeyed the circumcision law. He's breaking the circumcision group's argument from its very foundation. They're saying because Abraham was saved by circumcision, or by obedience to the law, we are therefore saved by the law. Is that no, he was not. He was saved by faith like us. Abraham didn't say, oh, I've memorized 70 verses. I fasted for two weeks straight. He believed in God. Had faith in what? He had faith at the time. He didn't know that Jesus was coming. He didn't know the details about the gospel. But Abraham knew that God's promises, God's faithfulness is what will deliver him, not his own obedience. Abraham had faith in God, and he was saved by that. By the way, let me just explain verse 7 real quick. Paul says, um, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham just means that when the Bible says sons, it's not being sexist, okay? When the Bible says sons, back in the day, the eldest child is the one who gets the inheritance from the father. So when the Bible says we're sons of God, referring to male and female, it's not sexist being that females can't enter the kingdom of God. It's, saying, it's actually the opposite. Uh, it's saying that females and males are both equal. They both have the opportunity to receive the inheritance of the son. And sexist people back then were upset about that. They're saying, you're, you're equating women with men? The gospel says yes. Male, female, whatever gender, whatever race, all can become sons, recipients of inheritance from God in the gospel. 
And the Jewish people were saying, to be sons of Abraham, to be God's people, to be saved, right? Sons of Abraham is referring to Israel, God's Old Testament people. So to, to be sons of, to, to receive the inheritance of God, to be saved, you must be circumcised. Paul saying, no, you're not. Abraham himself, the guy you put at the pinnacle of obedience, even he was saved by faith. Why do we think that we can ever maintain our salvation by our obedience? Why do we ever think that our disobedience can ever cause us to lose his love for us? If even Abraham himself was saved by faith. The story of Abraham is not about a righteous man who has earned his salvation. The story of Abraham is, Abraham is about a sinner who is saved by faith, just like all of us. Now, this leads us to a third point. The story of Abraham is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And if you don't read Abraham's story, Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, if you don't read that in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus Christ, we have not yet seen truly what it's about. Let's move on to our third point. After Paul reveal, tells him to think about how, how was it you were originally converted? How is it did you re receive Christ? Was it by works of the law? No, it was by faith. How was it that Abraham was saved? Was it by his obedience to the law? No, it was by faith. And now he's explaining, see, the whole story was about Jesus the whole time. Let's end with our last two verses of this passage. Look at verses 8 to 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel is in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Jesus Christ and the story of his death and resurrection and God's eternal salvation plan for man is all throughout the Old Testament. And unless we understand it in that light, Jesus says in Luke 24 that we have not yet understood the scriptures properly. So how does the story of Abraham, how is that about the gospel? Well, apparently, Paul says in verse 8, God preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Let's go back to what we said a few minutes ago. Who are the sons of Abraham? Who were God's people in the Old Testament? Israel. And the circumcision group was saying, you can become Israel, you can become God's chosen people, God's, God's saved people, by obeying God's laws like Abraham did. Paul says, no, no one ever obeyed God's laws. Even Abraham himself was saved by faith in Christ. You see that when God said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now when God says, when, when Paul is saying that, he's, he's helping us understand, when God says, in you shall all the nations be blessed, there's somebody in Abraham at that time, his, his offspring that will come from him, his descendants, in whom all the nations will be blessed. Now, when Abraham heard this in Genesis 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 6, six God said this to Abraham. God said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. When Abraham heard this, he's thinking, oh, God's talking about Israel. God's talking about my people, Israel. They're going to become a great nation and they're going to bless everybody. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's true. But that's not ultimately who God was talking about. Who is it that was in Abraham who will bless the nations? Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, referring to Israel, but referring to one. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Who is the person that will bless the nations? It's Jesus Christ. 
Why do you think in Matthew's gospel he intentionally wrote this as the first verse in his whole gospel? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why do you think Luke in chapter 3, verse 34, intentionally also put the same thing in there? Jesus, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Why were they trying to emphasize that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham? Why was Paul trying to emphasize that Jesus is the one that will come and, and bless the nations? Because it's revealing to us what the Old Testament was talking about. The Old Testament was pointing to Christ. You see, the nations will be blessed. All nations, not just Israel, not just males. All nations, all genders, all statuses can be blessed, can have a relationship with God through the offspring, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ. God is saying that he himself will one day come as man in the line of Abraham, in the line of David, and he will die on a cross for the sins of his people, for you and I. The Old Testament, Abraham, is all about the gospel. Do you see a Trinitarian God at work here? You see, the Father, in his sovereignty, since long ago, planned the gospel independent from our obedience, verses 6 to 9 of our passage today. The Son, in his mercy, accomplished the gospel by dying for our sins on the cross, even in the midst of our disobedience, verse 1 of our passage today. And the Spirit of God, in his power, makes this gospel effectual and real in our hearts, resulting in us receiving the work of Christ on the cross, untamed by the level of our obedience. It's been planned long ago, it was accomplished by God, and it's made effectual in our hearts by him. It's not 50-50, it's not 90-10, it's 100 by the grace and mercy of the sovereign Trinitarian God. So why in the world, Christian, would we ever think that our obedience and morality can somehow control God and make him love us more? Why in the world, Christian, would we think that our spiritual disciplines can tame God and somehow make our salvation more secure? Why in the world, Christian, do we think that when we fall into sin, we surprise God as if it shocked him and made his eternal plan for us gone? We are not that strong. Our obedience isn't that strong. Our disobedience isn't that strong. God is not tamed by it. Earlier I said it is the height of pride to think that our morality can control God to think that our obedience can control God. But in the same sense, it is also the height of pride to think that our immorality can control God. It is a height of pride to think that our disobedience can control God. He does what he pleases. He's planned it, he's accomplished it, and he's made it real in our hearts. Pride can go both ways. It can say, oh, look at me, I've, I've been obedient, and since God's love for me is dependent on my obedience, I deserve to be with him. That's prideful. But it can also go the other way. Oh, dear me, I've been disobedient. And since God's love for me is dependent upon the love of my obedience, I don't deserve his love. That's also prideful. Saying, you're not that strong, guys. <laughs> the Spirit will work as he pleases. God will work as he pleases. And his salvation purposes in us was accomplished 100% by him. In the work of Christ, our obedience cannot make God love us more, and our disobedience cannot make him love us less. This is what Paul says is the gospel. And as verse 2 said, 
in our passage today, when we hear this gospel with faith, broken, sinful man can be reconciled with God. So, right now we're hearing it, but will we rest in it? Will we trust it? Will we have faith in it? Can this gospel pay our bills? No. Can this gospel be physically consumed by us? No. But when the Spirit makes this gospel real in our hearts, that God has planned from long ago to pay for our sins by dying on a rugged cross, so that in his death we might find life with him forever, when this becomes real in our hearts, you best believe it will consume you. And it will be the most beautiful step in your life in that day when you receive this mercy of Christ on the cross, resulting in a life lived vividly for him, not out of a desire to control his love, but because his love is controlling us. Has this gospel consumed you? Let's pray. Father, what a big God we serve. What a strong God we serve. A God not tamed by what we've done or what we haven't done. A God not tamed by the level of our morality or obedience or immorality or disobedience. A God who moves and saves those he loves as he pleases. A God who's died for us on the cross. Fulfilling the justice of your wrath that we deserve. We have sinned. We have cheated against you, Hosea said. We have um, worshipped other things above you. And you have taken upon yourself that punishment that we deserve. Father, I beg you that you make this reality real in our hearts. That you bless us and save us. Not because of what we've done this week. Not because we came to church this morning. But because you are pleased to do so by your son. And we are dependent completely on your mercy and on your grace. Thank you for who you are. And as we sing, God, of this rugged cross, our salvation, let it minister continually into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.